Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Well, if you have a Bible and you would like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to Mark chapter 13. This morning, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13. If you have your own Bible, you can follow along with me there. Uh, If not, you can follow along in the Pew Bible that's in front of you, or you can follow along with me in the bulletin that's been provided as well. There are lots of ways to follow along if you'd like to do so. We'd invite you to do that. I do want to welcome you to Redeemer this morning. It's great to have you with us. Uh, My name's Sean Slate. And I'm the pastor here, and we're so glad to have you with us because we know uh, that there are a million different things uh, that you could be doing this morning. For instance, you could be at home cleaning out your lunchbox again after another two weeks of having been on virtual or having been quarantined. Uh, Those of you that are students over at the University of Tennessee, maybe you're taking anthropology, and after a couple weeks of class, you're wondering, when are we going to start talking about fashion? When are we going to start talking about candles? Instead of just all this, you know, history of humanity sort of thing. Uh, Others of you, you know, you might be at home uh, prepping your veggie. A couple of you are just now getting it, which is fantastic. Uh, um, You know, a couple others of you could be at home prepping your veggie tray, uh, getting ready to watch Tampa Brady tonight uh, at the Super Bowl. Uh, But you're not doing those things. You're here with us, and we're really glad uh, to have you with us. Um, Thanks for joining us here on our little corner of 17th and Highland. Thanks for joining us from home or from your Airbnb up in the mountains. We're really glad you're here. And the reality is that there's nothing better that you could do with your time uh, than to worship Jesus, to consider the claims of his kingdom and his claims upon your life. And so I do want to thank you for joining us. Welcome to Redeemer. What is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer is a church. And what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God And we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God. He's the Messiah. And he's entered into the world uh, to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week as his people, we gather together to worship him so that we might learn to rest in the love that God has for us in Jesus. And as we rest in his love, we then become a people who love to get together with one another around fire pits and watch football and, and uh, watch uh, University of Tennessee beat Kentucky and read the Bible and pray together, all so that we can remind one another the great love that God has for us in Jesus. And as we rest in his love and then as we remind each other of his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in service so that together... We might reflect the love of God to our family and to our friends and to our neighbors who are here in Urban and University Knoxville, and hopefully in some way it would spill out into the entire world, right? That's who we are, a people who are trying to learn how to love God, we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect. And so to help us do that during this season of Epiphany, we've returned to our series on the kingdom of God as seen through the lens of the gospel of Mark. And so this morning, what I want us to consider, what I want us to think about, is that the kingdom is coming. All right? 
The kingdom is coming. So with that in mind, let's look together. Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pangs. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. And you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The gospel of the Lord. In the first service, no, it was, nobody really wanted to say praise to you, Lord Christ, after the reading of this text. Uh, it's a hard one, and so let's do pray uh, for the teaching of it. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we are uh, very thankful that you're a God who's not hidden or silent, but you delight to make yourself known. And as we live our lives, there are so many words, there are so many voices that are vying for our attention And it is our prayer now that over these next few moments as we attend unto your word that you by your kindness would attend unto us so that we might see lovely things of you that we might endure to the end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't know if you picked up on it or not, but this is a pretty difficult passage. It's, it's difficult to interpret, it's difficult to understand, and uh, it's even more difficult uh, to, to try to preach. And so I do want to ask you to bear with me this morning. This morning it's going to be filled with imagery, it's going to be very theological. Uh, but this passage is deep, it's rich. It has all of these Old Testament images that are flowing out of the Old Testament, and then they flood into the New to make us, uh, or to help us understand who we are. Uh, When you look into the New Testament, we see Peter and we see Paul both building their understanding of who we are as the church off this passage. If you read the Bible all the way to the very end, there's this book called the book of Revelation and, and the apostle John, as he's thinking about the end and the final days and the final day that is to come, he thinks about this passage to help us understand these things. And then we've got to come to this passage and we've got to understand it in light of the entire gospel of Mark. And if you've been with us for a while, you'll remember that in Mark chapter 1, immediately after Jesus was baptized, 
and then was driven out into the wilderness to be tempted by the evil one, uh, Jesus comes out of that temptation and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so as we read the Gospel of Mark, so much of the Gospel of Mark has been about life in God's kingdom right now. It's been about the nowness of the kingdom. But here in this part of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is telling us that the now will one day give way to the not yet. That the now will one day give way to the not yet. And that's the point that Jesus is making for us this morning. That the kingdom is coming. Now to try to help you understand the way this is working within the Gospel of Mark, uh, let me try to illustrate it like this. I, I don't know if any of you have heard of or seen the movie Star Wars. Uh, but if you have, uh, you'll remember the way this movie uh, begins. It begins with the trumpets blaring, and then there's, uh, you know, the scrolling of the chapter, this chapter summary that begins to set the context a long time ago, right, in a galaxy far, far away. And then the music begins to die away. There's this little dramatic pause, and there's the little twinkling of the stars. And then you see the tip of an imperial uh, star destroyer. As if to say, the empire is at hand, right? And then that star destroyer continues to cruise. It's coming. And in the end, that star destroyer begins to fill up the entire screen. It fills up the entire frame. And what Jesus has been doing throughout the gospel of Mark is telling us that the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is coming. And the kingdom one day will fill up all things. The kingdom is coming. Right? The kingdom is coming. Would you say that with me? The kingdom is coming. Now to understand how this fits in and kind of what's been going on, you've got to remember that Jesus and his disciples had entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and they immediately went to the temple. And as they're walking around the temple, we looked at this last week, they begin to confront the scribes. And as they confront the scribes, they're confronting them because though they walk around in their robes and though they talk a big game of loving God, they don't love God, they don't love their neighbor, but Jesus shows that they love only themselves. And so after having walked through the temple, Jesus and his disciples leave the temple as if to say, this place is dead to us. This place has nothing for us. It is dead. And as they're leaving, I think that the disciples are a little bit confused by this because the temple is everything. And they're confused. And so one of them says, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings now, this would be like a couple of us, a couple of UT fans after the Alabama football game, sitting up behind Ayers on the hill, looking down over Neyland Stadium, and one of us saying, man, this is a train wreck. And then the other one says, yeah, but look at Neyland. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it amazing stadium? And, uh, and Jesus is saying, like, do you see the great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. It will be destroyed. And when Jesus says this, the disciples can't believe it because the temple was not only massive, and the temple was not only beautiful, and the temple was not only the center of Jewish life. To the Jewish mind, the temple was the most stable thing on earth. And it was the most stable thing on earth because that was the place where heaven and earth came together. 
That was the place where God dwelled. And so for the Jewish mind, though the world were to fall apart and though they were to be despised and rejected by all of humanity, they at least had the temple. They at least had the temple. And so for them, the temple was their hope. It was their identity. It was their glory. It it was their lunchbox. It was, as Max Fisher might say, it was their rushmore. And Jesus says, this temple that you place all your hope in, this temple that you think makes you so significant and important in this world, it is going to pass away. It will be destroyed. And for them, right, if the temple was going to be destroyed, that could only mean one thing. That the foundations of this earth were going to be ripped apart. And that the world was going to come to an end. And so they asked, verse 4, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. And so when they hear that this end is about to come, they, like many of us, want to know when. They want the predictions. And I'm sure many of you remember in 1999, as it flipped over to 2000, everybody thought maybe the world's coming to an end and people are setting up their tents, storing up all their food. Or maybe you remember when you were in the 8th grade and you learned about the French philosopher Nostradamus from 1566 and all of his predictions, and so you read and read Nostradamus. Or maybe recently, just two months ago, in fact, in the New York Post, they wrote an article uh, revisiting Nostradamus' predictions and uh, looking at how he alluded to the pandemic of 2020 and then how he went on to say that the year 2021 would be even more, would be an even more destructive hellscape than the previous year. Few young people, he said, half dead to give a start, fathers and mothers dead of infinite sorrows, women in mourning, the pestilent she-monster, the great one to be no more, all the world to end. Right? Or maybe uh, you remember the good old days of the Kirk Cameron movies, the Left Behind movies. Or maybe, like me, you grew up in the 80s and you remember Gorbachev's birthmark, which everyone thought was the mark of the beast. Right? And uh, he had all these things going on. And what Jesus is telling us, when he tells us about the end, he's telling us about the end uh, not so that we can read the signs and predict when it will be. That's what he says in verse 5. See that no one leads you astray. It's what he says in verse 32. But concerning the day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, not the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. And here's this point. Jesus tells us about the end, not for predictive purposes, but for the purpose of perseverance. He tells us about the end, not for predictive purposes, but for the purpose of perseverance. And what he's saying is, look, the kingdom is coming, therefore persevere to the end. All right, the kingdom is coming. Did you say that with me? The kingdom is coming. Now, one of the difficult things about this passage is that as we prepare to persevere, God does give us a sign. And what is the sign that he gives us? Well, the sign that he gives us is the destruction of the temple that occurred in 70 AD. 
And one of the things that makes the interpretation of Mark chapter 13 incredibly difficult is that as Jesus is telling this to the disciples, he's weaving in and out the imagery of the temple's destruction with that which it signifies, which is the coming of the end. And so he weaves these in and out uh, with one another. And so to help you think about this, I want to illustrate this a little bit. It's a little banal, it's a little trite, but... A couple weeks ago, I was out in Tucson, Arizona with my pastoral cohort, and we were visiting one of my friends, one of your friends, many of your friends, John Stone. And while we were out there one morning, we went on a hike, and we hiked from the desert up into the mountains. So we hiked from the desert up about 5,000 feet into the mountains. And if you've ever been to Tucson, you know that Tucson sits at about 2,500 feet above sea level. And as you look out on the city, it's just cactuses everywhere, <laughs> like six, seven, 12-foot cactuses, like everywhere, and all these things that want to kill you are just all around you. And then you're hemmed in by these mountains, and so you see mountains of the, you know, out everywhere. And so one morning we get up, we hike from the desert up 5,000 feet into the mountains, and when you get up on top of that mountain, you begin to realize that these mountains are just the beginning of row after row after row after row of more and more mountains. We're up 5,000 feet, but there were other mountains around us that were like 9,000 feet. It's amazing. You'd be down in the desert and look up at the mountains and you'd see snow up on top. It was a beautiful time. But here's my point, not the snow, not the desert. But from the desert, uh, all you could see, right, were these mountains that were right in front of you. But those mountains served as a sign of all the other mountains which were to come. And Jesus is saying that this destruction of the temple in 70 AD was a sign of all that was to come. And this helps us make sense of verse 30. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And what are all these things that take place? They refer not to the end of the world but they refer to the destruction of the temple, which was to serve as a sign as the end that would come or the coming of the kingdom. Now, some of you have tuned out and you're saying, why are you telling me this? Well, the reason I think that this is important to talk about is because many people uh, have been saying that Jesus thought that the end of the world would occur within a generation of his death. And so here we are 2,000 years later, and Jesus must have been wrong. Uh, and if Jesus is wrong, then Christianity is wrong. Uh, but what I want you to see is that wasn't Jesus' point in this text. Jesus' point was that the destruction of the temple served as a sign that the end is coming. And the temple actually was destroyed within a generation of his death, which again was the point, verse 7, this must take place, but the end is not yet. And so what I want you to see here is that Jesus is teaching us that the kingdom is coming, right? The kingdom is coming. Would you say that with me? The kingdom is coming. So on to my next question. It might not be your next question, but it was mine. So if the destruction of the temple was a sign, right, then what would it have been a sign of? Well, the destruction of the temple was a sign of the coming judgment. It was a sign that judgment was coming. And the reason that the judgment was coming is because there was a conflict that existed between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. And one of the things that Jesus wants us to see is that the judgment of God does not begin out there with the enemies of God and with the pagans, but it actually begins in here. 
with the idolatry and the rebellion and the abominations that are in God's people. And so what you've got to remember here is that the temple of God was actually God's gift, not just to Israel. It was the gift of God's presence, not just to Israel. But it was the gift of God's presence for the entire world. And what the temple meant was that the temple was supposed to be a place of forgiveness and communion with God so that all the world could come and know that God was reconciling all things to himself, that God desired to be among us. It was supposed to be a place where the world could come near to God and through him see that God was reconciling the world to himself. And and from that place, the glory of God was going to fill the earth and the kingdom of God would then endure forever. And so the temple existed to serve as a sign of God's glory. But sadly, what began to happen was that rather than a sign of God's glory, it had been perverted. And it became a sign not of God, but it became a sign of nationalistic superiority and self-righteousness. Israel began to pervert the sign as if to say the temple is the sign of our kingdom and of our greatness. Rather than the sign of God's kingdom and his greatness. And so as Jesus begins to walk through the temple, he recognizes that the kingdom of Israel and its religious life were actually in conflict with the kingdom of God. And therefore, it must be done away with so that the kingdom of God might actually fill the earth as it was always intended. And this, again, is a subtle yet clear point that comes out of verse 1. And as he came out of the temple... And as he came out of the temple, this is maybe the irony of all ironies. Because, again, you've got to remember that the temple was the dwelling place of God. And at the center of the dwelling place of God was a place called the Holy of Holies. And at the Holy of Holies was where God dwelt. Now, here we are in verse 1. And the Holy One of God, God himself, leaves the temple. Now, here's where I think it gets interesting. Uh, If you've ever read the Old Testament, in particular, the prophets, uh, you probably remember that in Ezekiel chapter 8, the Son of Man would come to Jerusalem. And when he comes to Jerusalem, uh, he would visit the temple. And there in the temple, uh, he would see the abominations and the false worship that were taking place. Now, what's interesting about that is that Jesus took on the title, the Son of Man. Jesus goes in the temple. He looks around to see everything that's going on. Now, in Ezekiel, when the Son of Man goes into the temple and sees all these things occurring, do you know what God's response is to these things? Well, in chapter 10 and chapter 11 of Ezekiel, the glory of God, which had filled the temple, leaves And when the glory of God leaves the temple, do you know what happens? Judgment then falls upon the temple and upon Jerusalem. It gets a little bit more interesting, at least in my mind. Thank you for bearing with me. Uh, If you move on from Ezekiel and you move forward into the book of Zechariah, chapter 14, after the glory is left, Jerusalem is plundered. And do you know where the Lord goes? The Lord leaves the temple, and do you know where he goes? Somebody's waiting. Hmm. He goes to Mount Olives, the Mount of Olives. 
right? And there on the Mount of Olives, he announces judgment upon Jerusalem. And then he announces that he is king over all the world. Let me bring you with me back to now to Mark chapter 13. In verse 1, Jesus, the holy presence of God, the holy one, leaves the temple. And where does he go? Verse 3, to the Mount of Olives. Now here's the point. Jesus leaves the temple and he goes to the Mount of Olives in order to pronounce judgment upon the temple and then to usher in his new kingdom. And by doing this, he is symbolically saying that the kingdom is coming and it will not be found in Jerusalem, nor will it be found in the temple. It will only be found in Jesus. The kingdom is coming, he says. All right, the kingdom is coming. Would you say that with me? The kingdom is coming. And so now the question for the disciples became this. How is it that we now live in the kingdom of God as we wait for it to come, right? How do we live in this kingdom as we wait for it to come? And so Jesus says in verse 9, be on your guard. He says in verse 13, endure to the end. And by doing this, what Jesus is saying is that there's going to be a conflict that begins to grow up around you, and you are meant to be signs of my kingdom as you endure, right? As the suffering comes to you, as the suffering comes all around you, you are to be signs of my kingdom in this world as you endure. And I think that this is important for us Uh, to to take to heart because one of the great defeaters of faith in Jesus is this. If God exists and if God is good, then how could there be suffering in this world? Uh, And this is probably the great philosophical question. It's probably the great experiential question and it's the great theological question, right? And uh, thanks for bringing it up. We don't have time to fully engage it. Uh, But as we look at this text, what I want you to see is this great encouragement that Jesus actually gives us. Because Jesus is not caught off guard. Jesus actually told us that this is what life in this world would be like. He said, I've told you that suffering would be a part of your life. In fact, in verse 23, Jesus says, be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. And so I think for us as Christians, the question isn't so much, how can God exist if? The real question to us as Christians is, why are you surprised when? Why are you surprised when? These are the things that Jesus has already told us He's told us that there would be suffering and conflict and sorrows in our life. As we read the passage, look at some of the sorrows. Look at some of the suffering. Verse 6, we see religious confusion. Verse 7, we hear of wars and rumors of wars. Verse 8, kingdoms rise up against kingdom, and then they turn their pride and their anger against God and against his people. In verse 8, we hear of earthquakes and famines. And in verse uh, in, in 2021, we hear of a pandemic. In verse 9, uh, there's persecution, right? And then in verse 12, there are families that are divided against family. Some of our international friends who are visiting with us who love Jesus. I mean, one of their greatest fears is to go home. 
to go back to their country where they might be exiled from their families and maybe even have a sentence of death placed upon them for trusting in Jesus. Family against family, as Jesus had said. And, and these are often things that make us wonder if God exists and if he's good. And Jesus is saying to us, I've told you that these things would happen. And the reason that these things happen is because the kingdom of God is actually rising up against the kingdom of man. And when the kingdom of God rises up against the kingdom of man, the kingdom of man doesn't like it. And these sufferings come into our life. And all these sufferings are but, verse 8, the birth pains. They're the birth pains of the new life for which all of us long for. And I love this imagery of birth pains because what are birth pains? Birth pains are but the contractions that push out the child that you long for. And through the birth pains at the end comes pure joy and pure delight in this new life that is given. And what Jesus is telling us is that the world is in the middle of contractions as it waits for, its, uh, for, as it waits for God's kingdom to be born. This passage is actually a promise of God to us. We read it and we're so afraid of it, and yet it's actually God's promise to us that there will be a day When all of these contractions will cease and sickness and sorrow and pain and death are going to be gone, they're going to be judged, they're going to be destroyed. And the new life that we all long for will come forth. It's a hopeful passage. It's a hopeful passage, verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Your perseverance, your endurance is not in vain, but it leads to salvation. Do you, see, do you see the point that Jesus is trying to make? He's telling us about the end, not as a prophetic puzzle for us to try to figure out, but he's telling us about the end as a prophetic call to endurance. And as a prophetic promise that if you endure or when you endure, you will be saved. But how then is it that we will be saved? We will be saved through the day of judgment, and then we'll be formed into the new temple by God's Spirit. This is a lot here, but I want you to see that God destroys the old temple as a sign that he will destroy everything that we try to build our life upon other than him. And because Jesus is and always has been the true temple, we learned that in John chapter 1, Jesus comes, makes his dwelling upon us, the language is he tabernacled among us. He makes his dwelling among us. Jesus is the holy of holies. And what happened on the cross? The cross wasn't an accident. The cross was the great sacrifice. Jesus was the sacrifice that had been offered at all the other temples. He was the sacrifice. And he endured the judgment of God on our behalf in advance of that coming day. And unlike the temple and unlike its sacrifices that were destroyed and came to an end, Jesus, the great temple, Jesus, the great sacrifice, Jesus, even the great high priest, endured through death into resurrection and new life. And so now, what is Jesus doing? What is Jesus doing now? He's ascended into heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, as we heard about in the baptism. 
And from heaven, he pours out his Holy Spirit upon his people. And he pours out his Holy Spirit upon his people in order to begin to reshape us and to refashion us and to build us up as a new temple that is now rooted and established in him. This is what Jesus is doing, and this is the way that his kingdom is advancing. This is the way that his kingdom is coming. That he's building a new temple made up of living stones that will fill the earth as a sign of God's coming kingdom. If, you, if you've ever read, I'm sure many of you have read this, uh, Thomas Merton's uh, commentary on Augustine's City of God. Uh, and as you read it, he has this great quote. He says, Even the wars, persecutions, and all the other evils which have made the history of empires terrible to read and more terrible to live through have had only this one purpose. They have been the flails with which God has separated the wheat from the chaff, the elect from the damned, They have been the tools that have fashioned the living stones which God would set in the walls of his city of vision. Through all these sufferings, through all these contractions, God is fashioning fashioning us and, and fitting us to be these living stones for his temple. That's who we are as the church. We are the new temple, the the new sign of God's presence and the foretaste of God's coming kingdom. And this is how Paul understood the church, right? You remember in the book of Ephesians, he tells us that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You remember that this is how Peter understood who we are. Peter, who was with Jesus in this interaction, sitting with him on the Mount of Olives. Peter, in 1 Peter, tells us this. uh, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a living priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's not only Peter and Paul, but it's also John, who was also at this interaction with Jesus. John, at the end of the book of Revelation, as he's thinking about the coming kingdom and as he's surveying the the final day, he says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, the Almighty and the Lamb, and by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. And, and here's the point. Jesus is making that the contractions of this world are serving to give birth right, to God's beautiful final kingdom. And he tells us about this in order to encourage us to persevere to the very end. Because we are his temple. And we are to be signs of God's kingdom in this world. Here's the point. Uh, the kingdom is coming. Right? Say that with me. The kingdom is coming. And that's the point of the table. Uh, as we're about to come to the table, I want to invite you to come with me and let's talk about it for a second. Because as we come to the table, 
uh, we're reminded, right, that, that Jesus invites us to come to this table and to eat this bread and to drink this cup. And as we do so, we do it until he comes again. This is God's promise to us that he will come again. And as we come to this table, we're, we're reminded that he alone is the one that we build our lives upon. We come here with nothing and we come to this table where he is everything. And when we look at this table, we see the bread and we see the wine. We remember, we are reminded of Jesus' body and of his blood that, that Jesus is the final sacrifice. That he is the one who offers forgiveness. He is the one who offers reconciliation. He is God near us. He pours his spirit out. He invites us to come so that he might feed us and strengthen us and root us together in Jesus so that as he sends us out, we go out as signs and foretaste of the coming kingdom. This table is God's promise to us that the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming. Would you say that one more time with me? The kingdom is coming. Therefore, I invite you to rise and to lift up your hearts.